Let me invite the rest of you to open up to John chapter 6. That's where we'll be this morning. And um, as you can tell from the screen behind me and uh, on your bulletin cover this morning, we're, we're going back to school this morning. And uh, probably most of us in this room have some memories of school, which is a good thing uh, for some and maybe a bad thing for others. I don't know how many of you like school, but um, some some people love school. You know, they just they're a glutton for punishment. And there's people who who like to continue school long after they they don't have to go to school anymore. They choose to keep on going. Um, here's here's maybe your your experience. Maybe it was more like like this guy here, and and uh, you just you just didn't like school much. And the first opportunity you had to not be at school was a really good thing. Um, maybe you just don't remember school, uh, whether you slept through it or or. Other reasons, uh, yeah. There's a few nods. Um, yeah, you know, school. We could sit around and tell school stories, probably, right? And and hear a variety of different things. Um, we had a community group leaders huddle uh, right in this room uh, last night. We had some dinner together and just met for some training and some prayer, just about our community groups. And I'm not going to repeat the story, but we heard some interesting school stories that involved principals and uh, all sorts of fun things. Um, so if you'd like to hear cool school stories, come be a community group leader, and you'll get to be a part of that. Um, Jesus School is is a little different than any school than any of us grew up in, in terms of elementary, middle, high school, college, university. And as we look at John 6 this morning, um, and I was praying this week and asking, you know, asking what the Lord would have for us this morning to feast on and what he would want us to draw our attention to, um, it really dawned on me, you know, last week I left off really with the, the Great Commission. And this is Jesus as, as, he, as he's about to depart and not be with his disciples anymore. He leaves this, he leaves the mission really clear and really, really simple. Go and make disciples of all nations. And he says, baptize them. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And if you think about it, as Jesus was here for a relatively short three and a half public ministry time period, he, he had that amount of time to train up and to really start the church. And as most of you who know have been in church even for a short period of time know that that was, that's called the disciples. And that's who he's running around with and that's who he's hanging out with and that's really who he's instilling the future of the church in. In John chapter 6, we read, as Ben mentioned, about the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. Again, you don't have to be a long-term Christian or a big churchgoer to probably have heard those stories, seen little snippets of that. But really this morning, we're not going to talk so much maybe in the direction that maybe you think we are. Um, This would be a mistake to think that John chapter 6, this first part, is really about, you know, fish and chips and, you know, barefoot water skiing. Uh, there's two miracles that go on here, undeniable, laid out for us in Scripture, and there's so much there. But as God often does, there's kind of something happening up here, but then there's so much more going on a little bit under the surface with what he's doing. And what I want to point out to you this morning is in John chapter 6, in the midst of these two supernatural, phenomenal experiences, what Jesus is doing is he's making disciples. He's making disciples. 
Here is the lesson plan. In your, in your notes, you're going to be able to just kind of fill these out. But I, as, as I see it, as I see the way Jesus worked it out from John chapter 6, if I were to, if I were to try to figure out what was Jesus' lesson plan for his disciples, here it is. And we're just going to kind of walk through this. The first 21 verses of John chapter 6. How did Jesus make disciples? He didn't do it in a classroom, didn't do it with a lot of books, didn't do it with a lot of formal training. What he tended to do was take field trips, right? If you were in Jesus school, you wouldn't come in and plan on just sitting at a desk and being bored. I guarantee you that. I had a professor at San Jose Christian College. Named, uh, his name was Don Hinkle. And Don was a guy who, I don't know, he looked like 80 to me at the time. He was super old. He was bald and had Santa Claus hair. Uh, and he just was fairly old. But the guy acted as if he was like 17 from the time he was 17 all the way up until that point. And he was in youth ministry all the way up until he was that that age. He didn't skateboard. He stunk at volleyball. Couldn't play the guitar. Didn't have a cool hip goatee or a soul patch. But the guy just connected with youth. It was unbelievable. Here's how here's how Don Hinkle would would set up class, and it it was one of my favorite classes. And by the way, I still remember a ton of them of the lessons from Don Hinkle, and here's why. Imagine we're in school. I don't even know what time it was, but it was too early for my taste. You come dragging in. You're a college student. Here's what Don would do. He'd walk up to the front. He'd say, get your binder and follow me. And he'd just start walking out the door just like this. And you're all sitting there stunned going, what is he talking about? And so it's cold. Uh, you've just woken up and drug yourself over from the dorm. And you're going, I guess we're supposed to follow him because he's out the door in a flash. We don't even know what's going on. Before you know it, he's walked us through Mark chapter 1. And in Mark chapter 1, I don't know how many there are, but there's about 8 to 12 immediately's. And immediately, Jesus did this. And immediately, Jesus did this. And he turned San Jose Christian campus into Jerusalem. And we're going all over the place, and we're doing these lessons. And guess what? I'm loving it. I'm totally dialed in. I don't know what's coming next. And that's the way Don taught. And as I've reflected over the years, I just thought, man, I think Don Hinkle might be one of the closest Jesus teachers I've ever had in my life. Because that's the way Jesus taught. Jesus would take them on these different adventures. He would walk out the door right when they were least expecting and going, well, we're his followers. I suppose we're supposed to follow. So they'd get up and they'd truck on after him and try to figure out what was going on. And if you read the Gospels even kind of fairly light, you get very quickly that much of the time, they just had little clue what was happening. They really didn't. They were barely keeping up. So if you're new to this church thing and you go, man, uh, I'm barely keeping up. You know what? You're in great company. That was the disciples. That was the first century followers of Jesus much of the time. Look at verse 1 with me. Um, John chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, NAS, I believe, translates this way. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I want to stop there just for one second. After what things? And why did he go away? It says after these things. Now, one of the things I want to point out to you this morning is this. Uh, Matthew 14, you can just write this down. You don't need to look it up. But Matthew 14 records the same events we're about to read this morning. Mark chapter 6 records the same events that we're about to look at this morning. And Luke chapter 9 record the same thing. If all four Gospels record the event, it was a pretty major ordeal. There's not many of them. 
The synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all share and look fairly similar. John is kind of way off there and provides a lot of augmented information. But to, to really get what's going on in this story, I'm going to pull up from all four gospels and it's going to help fill in the scene a little bit. Because John wasn't interested in giving every last detail of it, but when you read the four in conjunction, you kind of get a more full picture. Mark 6 points out what things were being talked about. Jesus and his disciples had really just returned from a preaching mission. They had gone out. Jesus went out and was preaching and teaching, and he sent his disciples out preaching and teaching. He sent them off on a missions trip, really. That's what he did. And so now he... They're back together, and he's about to pull away, and he wants to take them off um, by themselves for a little bit. Here's just what I see in the scriptures, and this is one example of it. After heavy seasons of ministry, it is right and godly and Jesus-like to pull away by yourself, to renew, to refresh. And we don't expect our cars to just go mile after mile after mile after year without regular checkup, without oil changes. And sometimes spiritually, we go, man, I can't figure it out. I've been given for the last 24 years in Sunday school and uh, every Thursday night at such and such, and I can't figure out why I'm bone dry and why I just almost can't stand church or God right now. You know what? You're, you're doing what you'd never even do to your machine. You've never taken just time away. So Jesus pulls away. Why do you debrief a missions trip? Because you need to pull back and talk. What did God do? Let's just process life a little bit together. Matthew 14 provides additional information. In fact, one of the other Gospels records this as well, that John the Baptist's murder um, had just been reported back to, to, to Jesus and the disciples. And so I think Jesus was pulling his disciples away to the mountainside for a couple of reasons. One is, busy season of ministry, let's pull away and debrief a little bit. Secondly, they were in grieving. They were in mourning. John the Baptist had been murdered. Verse 2 says this, A large crowd followed him, talking about Jesus, because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Just a word to moms really quick. My wife, by the way, is home with four uh, out of five of our kids sick this morning and a very long night last night. Um, I know I'm not alone. I know talking to some of you moms and just seeing the looks in some of your eyes, uh, some of you look with glee because you remember these days and you're past it. And you're just going, yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Um, some of you are, are thinking with fear and trepidation because you're entering into it, you know, um, but I just want to say one, one quick word to, to, to moms, and that is this. Here Jesus is pulling away, and Jesus pulled away often. He, he, would, he would pull away and want to be alone. Here he's pulling away, and it says, a large crowd followed him. And they wanted something from him. And I just, I mean, I imagine my wife, we have a tiny kitchen, and she's in there trying to do something. There's a large crowd that wants something from my wife, and I'm shoving my way to the front of the line, you know, as one of them. And Jesus understands. Moms, when you feel like a large crowd wants something from you, when you wanted just five minutes of personal space and time this next week, Jesus understands that. You know what this is? This is life as a pastor, too. Life as a pastor is that you have people that want things from you. You get people calling at odd times. I dated a pastor's daughter through high school, and so I got to see this up close and personal. I wasn't planning on being a pastor at the time, so... Didn't phase me, I just thought bummer for him. <laughs> but Pastor Jesus had the same thing go on. 
He had to sacrifice things that he would have rather been doing or sacrifice seasons of away, seasons of refreshment, because a large crowd was there. In other places in the gospel, it just talks about the compassion Jesus felt for this large crowd. And he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus took them on field trips, no doubt about it. Here's the second thing. Jesus tested them. He says, okay, field trip, check. How about a test? Look at verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Verse 6, he says, he asked this only to test him, for he already knew what he was going to do. As Ben mentioned, it says feeding of the 5,000. You may have thought Ben got it wrong with saying 15,000. It mentions the men that were present. There were there would be no doubt women and children that were not counted in that. And so 15,000 is probably a very safe estimate of that. If you've ever been into a Sharks game, the Sharks had a phenomenal win last night, and uh, that place holds 17,000 people. I have sat in that place before and thought, man... This is a ton of people. Now, they're just spread all over. They're not in a nice, neat, you know, play shark tank type area. They're just everywhere. I mean, it looks looks like just a sea of people. And Jesus just fires off this question. Man, how are we going to feed them? I'll tell you the disciples' idea. A couple of the the other Gospels record, send them away, Jesus. Dismiss them. Get them out of here. They better go get something to eat. Jesus had a different thing in mind, didn't he? He asked them this only to test them. He says that. He certainly didn't need input from people. He wasn't like running a committee. All right, what's our plan? Let's get some status report. I need to hear from people. I don't know what I'm going to do. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He also knew what was in their heart, but I think that part of it is he wanted to, he wanted to set up the impossibility of the situation. Sometimes just articulating that makes you realize that after a miracle happens, you go, man, I was really in a lurch. This really was a huge miracle that went on. Jesus asked this question to test them. Now, here's the responses. Philip, who we could call Eeyore in this situation, um, he just focuses on the hopelessness of the situation. Um, you know, Philip is just Philip is just kind of a mess. He, he says, um, uh, says Philip answer, answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Some of you in this room, some of you have family members, some of you have co-workers that are so worked up about the political landscape right now and the, 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 the moral ground that maybe cultural Christianity is fearful of losing, and they're just uptight and worried about it. Finances is so looming large on their, on their horizon that you don't see any faith in there. There's just fear and panic and retreat and worry. This would be Philip. Philip's the one who just sees the negative. He just goes, there's no way this can go on. Again, you're in good company. Jesus doesn't let these things go. We're going to see all through the Gospel of John. He doesn't just let it go. He will confront sin. He will confront faithlessness. He will confront doubt. But know that you're in good company. And also, let the miracles that go on here translate to your home situation to whatever it is you're going through, that maybe you're the Eeyore personality. You have, you've lived an Eeyore kind of a life, and you go, yeah, I tend to just see the glasses half empty. You're in good company. Andrew fares a little bit better. He kind of offers this answer, but then he retracts. He says this, he says, 
Um, another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So remember Peter and kind of what might run in the family there. Um, it says this. It says, he spoke up. There's a shock. Uh, verse 9. Here's a boy with five small body loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? I, it's, to me, I, I read this a little bit as, you know, here's an idea. Oh, wait, never mind. That was stupid. Forget it. Totally wrong. Never mind. You know, backtrack. It, he said it. He whispered in my ear. And it's like there's a, there's a little shred of faith, a little shred of hope. Like, here's something. But then you kind of retreat. And I, I think that probably some of us in this room um, have tasted of that, too. Maybe Jesus could do something with this. Probably not. I don't do... I don't do things so well. Probably couldn't use me. That was dumb. Never mind. I'll never share that with another person again. And there's a timidity there. And I just, I read that and I identify with that. I go, man, I wish I didn't, but I do. He spoke up, but then he backtracked and kind of retreated. Here's the question then. Is is Jesus just toying with them? Does he like to see people squirm? He's put a test in front of them. He's asked a question. He already has in mind what he's going to do. But he puts this out to them anyways. He's making disciples. That's what Jesus is doing. Part of how you train someone up is you test them. He used it to strengthen their faith. As I said before, he used it to set up just how remarkably impossible this situation is. Nachos for everyone at the Shark Tank. On your dime, how's it going to happen tonight in the next 10 minutes? People are hungry. I don't know. There's no possible way. It would take a miracle. That's what he wanted to set up. That's what he wanted to point out. He also revealed what was in their heart. Doubt, limited view of Jesus. Here's my question to you, to me. What is our response to testing in our life? Some of us have known God long enough that we know testing is part of the deal, but we're still shocked by it. Are you shocked when you get tested? Are you shocked when a child comes into your life? Maybe you feel entitled and you go, how dare God do this? What right does God have to put this trial in my way, to frustrate this plan of mine, to put this roadblock here? Maybe you're more the whining type. Why can't it just be easy? I long for easy. I long for comfort. But I've had to train myself. I prayed this this week. I don't know why God put this on my heart. It scares me to death, to be totally honest. A prayer that God put on my heart as I'm driving into church one day this week was, God, help me to suffer well. I don't know what that means. I don't know why God put that on my heart to pray. I do know that I'm getting along with Jesus long enough now to know that that's that's part of the deal. That's part of what's coming. Lord, teach me to suffer well. How many of you students in this room think about tests this way? A test. Oh, please give me a pop quiz. Yes. Now, there's some sick people in here. That was your high school experience or your college experience, and we're having a prayer session for you afterwards. You know what, James? um, James says this, consider it pure joy. Let that just, don't read over that part. Consider it pure joy. Think of what brings you nothing But pure joy probably doesn't equal testing, does it? Trials. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work 
so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's the principle that you need to write down. God is more interested in my holiness than my happiness. God is more interested in my holiness than my happiness. Questioning God and saying, God, why, is not a bad thing. That's being open and honest and means you have a relationship with the Father that you could question. But trusting Him through it is what He wants. When you start to figure that out, when you start to realize the goals that God has for you as His child, and that it's holiness and not happiness, it removes a lot of the why questions. Why can't this just be easy, Lord? Oh, that's right. If it were easy, I suppose everyone would just walk around in holiness all the time. Field trip. Check. Test. Check. Next on the lesson plan is a wowie. Now, the term wow is, uh, is used. There's actually a dictionary definition for it, which was cool. Used to express surprise, admiration, wonder, or pleasure. The term wowie was adapted maybe before this, but I think for the first time by my eighth grade science teacher, teacher, Mr. Komodo. And every Friday in junior high science, we would get a wowie. Now, I had older brothers that went through Rogers Middle School, and so I got to hear about wowies long before I got to experience them. But I was so thrilled when I was in eighth grade and my first Friday came along, and I got to experience one of Mr. Komodo's wowies. And what he would do, basically, is just do some kind of object lesson. He'd blow things up. He'd float things around the room. He'd light a kid's hair on fire. I don't know, whatever. I mean, I don't know what they were, but he just did really, really cool stuff for a junior high, eighth grade boy. And I loved it. And again, that was my highlight of my week, was Mr. Komodo's wowies in science class. Jesus pulls a little wowie here. Probably puts Mr. Komodo's wowies to shame. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. When they'd all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves. Left over by those who had eaten. I want you to notice something here that uh, we see already in the first few verses here that this, probably if you were to give the disciples a grade on their faith right now, it'd be really lacking. I mean, we get to see the end of the story, so it's a little bit unfair. We get to see the answer key, so to speak. But if you were to grade their faith right now, it wouldn't be an A or a B, would it? You'd say their faith is a little bit broken here. There's a lot of growth that needs to be done. But look at their obedience. Their obedience is scoring pretty high. They're obeying what what Jesus says to do, even if their faith is broken. Here's what I just want to point out with that. Let people, and maybe start with yourself, but let people grow in stages. Meet people right where they're at and just let them grow in stages. Sometimes people are able to obey long before they have the faith or the words to articulate why they're obeying. That's okay. If you're in a community group and you're frustrated because some people aren't as rational as you and you've worked out all of your systematic theology and you've written papers and blogged about it and printed it and all kinds of stuff, but other people go, I just feel God. 
and you go, ah, you can't just feel God. There's got to be reason behind it. And you want to come, let that be okay. Learn from each other. The disciples here weren't doing so hot in the faith realm. They did not have a clear, accurate picture of God. Their theology was messed up. But you know what? Their obedience was really good. Go and do this. Okay. Jesus told us to do it. You sit out on the grass. You guys sit over here and you just start doing it. Stages of growth. Here's something else. I, I don't know why. My brain thinks this way. Anytime I read about a miracle in the Bible, I grew up hearing about the miracles of the Bible a lot. So I, I know them well. And every time I would sit in Sunday school and I'd be sitting there listening to the story of something, you know, I would just think about the different ways Jesus could have done the miracle, right? I mean, he's God, right? He can do it any way that he wants. And um, I remember hearing about this one, you know what I mean? You know, 15,000 people, a whole, you know, shark tank full of people. Um, how, how could God have done it? He could have done it a lot of ways. I mean, he could have made, made just immediately a massive food court, right? Poof, just like that. And there's just this whole deal. And people are like, whoa, cool. 30 fully staffed outback restaurants, you know, just conveniently placed all over the place. And they get to put their order. I mean, he could, he could have done anything. He could have had the biggest giant cow, you know, appear. And then they kill it and eat it. I don't know. I mean, a big enough cow to feed 15,000 people. He could have done anything he wanted, right? Here's how he did it. He did it rather unextraordinarily, right? Rather under the radar, rather simple. He really did this miracle, little, little fish sandwich at a time. One fish sandwich goes out, another one goes out, another one goes out, more go out. You, take this one over here. And it just starts happening. And I got to thinking this week about this, that this whole idea of simple and this creative God that's walking the planet, he parcels out goodness. He parcels out sustenance little at a time in rather unextraordinary ways. Now take what I just said and translate that to your experience right now. Some of you need grace enough for today. And you're so worried about next week and next year and all that's coming that perhaps you even miss the grace that God's given to you today been referenced in a prayer that in the Old Testament, God gave manna one day at a time. That required faith every single day. It underscored the reality that God's mercies are new every morning as manna shows up. Maybe tonight at dinner you'll think differently. When you pray and thank God, it won't be repetition, it won't be routine, it won't be religion. It'll be, thank you God for this meal. Thank you, God, for our health. Thank you, God, that I walked into church today and I can wiggle all ten of my fingers. I love being around children because children constantly remind me to awaken to the mystery that's all over the place. Tegan wanted to point out a sunset to me this week. I happen to love sunsets. I already noticed it, but I love that she wanted to share it with me. Daddy, come here, check this out. The sky is totally red. God parcels out his sustenance. God parcels out his goodness to us in rather unextraordinary ways. Take stock of that. Sometimes waiting for the spectacular, we, we miss the bounty, this whole bounty that's all around us. People do that in church. Longing for their church to be this way or that way or the way their uncle's is in 
in such and such a state. And they miss the relationship, the richness that's going on all around them. The fact that this morning we get to gather here. I, I pray this, Lord, let this not be routine, that we get to gather as God's people today around the Lord's table, celebrate communion, sing songs of praise, open God's word, laugh together, and learn from God. That's an awesome thing. Jesus used faith-faltering disciples to accomplish his plan. You see how God does the miracle? Snap of his fingers could have had the whole problem taken care of. Not how he does it. You 12, huddle up. Come here. We've got a plan here. Here's what's going down. You do this, you do that, and he just starts laying out the plan. Isn't that powerful to think about? Jesus works incredible miracles through faith-faltering disciples in the Bible. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Guess what he does today? He works miracles through me. He works miracles through you. And God says, obey me. I know your faith is faltering right now. Take another step. If I tell you there's something to do in the word, obey it. Remember what making a disciple is? Baptizing them and teaching them obedience. To obey all that I've commanded you. Find out what Jesus demands of a disciple, then do it. There's the Christian life. It's not... It's not by mastering 200 plus principles. It's not by heaping laws on yourself. It's just simple steps of obedience. Before you know it, you look around and you realize, God is using me to do credible things. The memorial service went on here on Saturday. And Brother Don Porter here preached a powerful gospel message. And I was sitting back, I was playing sound man, and I was praying for Don. Because you know what was happening? The gospel was going out. The gospel was going out in this building on Saturday afternoon at the celebration of his mom. Fortunately, it was a homecoming. She knew the Lord. But what a great thing. I don't know, I don't know that anyone came to know the Lord that day, but the gospel went out. And God's using dawn. And God's using you to work miracles all around you. Open up your eyes to that. The fact that he involves the family is a precious thought. That begs the question this, do miracles happen? I started to go this direction with the message. Miracles, do they really happen? Is this true or not? Is this, is this overexcited storytelling by all four guys? They're like, oh man, this is so cool. He kind of splashed around in the water, but let's say he walked on the water, you know. I love to tell stories. Is this just overexcited storytelling? Is this some kind of a metaphor? Is there, just, is there just a story here and the 12 baskets represent the 12 tribes and on and on it goes? No, this is a miracle. These are both miracles. And we're not going to have a whole big um, lesson on miracles. That's not what this morning's going to be about. But I want to just point your attention back to chapter 5 and last week. And I know last week I gave you a whole book in the bulletin and gave you a ton of stuff. But let me just point out one more thing about chapter 5. You can go read it for yourself later. Notice what the opponents of Jesus were attacking. Here's what they weren't attacking. They weren't attacking his miracles or his power. They weren't denying any of that. They couldn't deny any of that. It was experiential and everyone experienced it. If I right now turned into a tree, turned back into myself... And, and some of you, and then, and then made a claim about that. And said, I am 
a tree warrior. Now, some of you in this room are opponents of tree warriors, and you don't think that that's right, that anyone, especially a pastor, should be a tree warrior. And so you're going to attack me. Are you going to attack the fact that I turned into a tree? No, because everyone here saw it, and you did too. And frankly, it kind of ticked you off because you don't even believe in tree warriors. I'll tell you what you're going to attack. You're going to attack my claim that I'm a, that I'm a tree warrior. Make sense? Jesus performed miracles. His opponents didn't go after the miracles themselves. I'll tell you what they did. They went after the claims. How dare you call yourself the Son of God? Elsewhere, they ascribe his power to Satan. They don't deny the power. They just ascribe it elsewhere. They don't know where else to go. They can't attack the miracles because they were seen and witnessed by all, including themselves. That's a powerful picture to say, this isn't overexcited storytelling. This isn't meant to be some metaphor and be artistic. These are miracles that happened. And his opponents were, were, were well aware of that. Listen to this. This is John eleven forty seven. We're going to get to this, I don't know when, but a long, long time from now. These are some politicians gathering. Okay, Here's what they say. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're in a tizzy because they don't know what's going to go on because all these signs are going on and they've got to put a stop to this because people are turning to him and believing in him. Real miracles. All right. Field trip. Test. Wowie. Now there's time for an assignment. Look at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Now, by the way, again, the other, the other uh, Gospels provide more information on this, but basically Jesus sends them away. He puts them on a little solo field trip. You guys go off and do this. Not many details are given. Jesus, when he's given me assignments, he hasn't filled me in. I've asked a lot. God, I want more information before. I need to weigh this. and He just doesn't do that. He just says, go. And then you're left with a choice. God, do I trust or do I not trust? He doesn't give many details. But again, note the obedience. They, they obey. They're taking steps of obedience. Their faith may be broken, but their obedience is doing good. Matthew 14.22 adds this, that Jesus made the disciples go ahead of him. Now, they don't, they don't sense him close because he's not close. Sometimes you and I are in the midst of some assignment and we feel like we're apart from Jesus. Is Jesus physically apart from his disciples right here? Yes, he is. He's not with them in the boat. Okay? Is Jesus out of control of the situation or out of knowledge of where they are? No, not at all. I have tested my children before. I would never let my four-year-old be tested at the beach by saying, let's see if she's good at staying out of the water unless she comes and checks with daddy first. I'm going to go grab some pizza, and I'll be back in about half an hour and see how she does. No, F, bad dad, don't do that. Here's how I would test her, though. I would test her by keeping my eye on her from a distance, right? I would always be close enough to rush in and grab her if anything happened, but I could watch her, and I could just see. I would rather test her at four with this kind of thing, and again at four and a half, and just on and on and on and on and on and let this trickle, then at 18 one day go, well, you're off on your own. Good luck with everything. I love to come and scoop my kids up and say, man, you did the right thing. You knew you're not supposed to touch the water, huh? And you turned away. 
great job. You didn't know this, but I was over there watching you. Great job, Tegan. She just gets a huge smile. Right on. It's also a teaching opportunity if they fail the test to reinforce something that goes, this is really important. I love you so much. Don't you ever go in the waves like that without Daddy. Jesus sends them off. He's away from them. He's not physically with them. Jesus had taught his disciples to pray the kingdom in. Lord, teach us how to pray. Pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Remember that? In the very next few verses here, it says this. Look at verse 14. And the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, this feeding of the 5,000. And they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing what they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Here's what's going on. I think maybe part of why Jesus removed his disciples from this situation is he didn't want them to get swept up in the false enthusiasm that somehow Jesus was here as an earthly king to set up shop, to fill tummies, to heal sick, and to pull off really cool wowies for people. He didn't want them to get infected by that. I think he sends them away for that. They're about ready to come and take him and make him king by force. He's going to deal with that, but he sends his disciples on ahead. Uh, look at verse 18. Verse 18 says this. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. The disciples are out in the water, by the way. Verse 19. When they had rowed three or four, uh, three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. Okay. Um, Next in our next in our uh, lesson plan is to scare them. <laughs> Again, I don't even know how else to do this. This is just part of Jesus' plan. We're going to test them. We're going to give them assignments. We're going to just totally freak them out. And one of the other passages is awesome because it says that Jesus came and he was intending to pass them by. <laughs> like, I mean, just imagine these seasoned fishermen out there. They're starting to freak out and panic a little bit. They're like, man, we are in way over our heads. And you could read, I read all kinds of boring commentary. I mean, it's mildly fascinating, but of why, you know, the Sea of Galilee sits X number of feet below sea level and the mountains rise to here and the squalls come in and this is normal and this is what Bible college teaches you and this is common for this region and on and on and on it goes. Bottom line is they're freaked out. They're in over their heads. They thought they knew what they were doing. Totally pushed off course. Rowing for hours. Um, they, they had left somewhere between 6 and 9 p.m. It's now between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Long night. Miserable night. Confused. Tired and just probably going, what is Jesus up to? And then he comes and he's intending to pass them by. I don't even know how this looks, but it's just sweet. I'm picturing running shorts. You know, he's just kind of like speed walking, or well, I don't know what he's doing, but he's like, hey, you know, uh, disciples flip out, and you and I would too. And he just freaks them out. He terrifies them. Could have calmed the storm, right? He could have done this a number of different ways, chose not to, chose to just go walking out to them. This is the same encounter, by the way, where Peter says, Lord, if that's really you, tell me to come. And Peter goes out and walks on the water. Here comes Jesus. Again, this is supernatural. This is not something that would just normally go on. Um, We could play a game show this morning with the real miracle. Please stand up. Uh, if you read all four Gospels and you read of this account, what you realize is in this one encounter, you basically get four miracles for the price of one. Okay, here's, here's the details that these four Gospels provide. Jesus walking on water, very difficult to do, 
unless you have a ski boat or unless you're God. Okay, It just doesn't happen, right? We know that. Peter walking on the water. There's a second miracle right there. Here's a, here's a third miracle. Um, the storm immediately ceases. One of the other Gospels points out that as soon as Jesus comes in the boat, the weather stops. Things are good. The fourth one that John records is that all of a sudden the boat that they had been trying to get to their destination was immediately at their destination. There's, there's miracles going on here all over the place. Right? God's doing all kinds of stuff. John records that there's many other things I could have written about. I'm just kind of picking some of the highlights for you so you can get sort of a snapshot. Well, even the ones they recorded, we don't always think about just all the miracles that are kind of going on right there. Here's the deal, though. We're often so impressed by the big, by the dramatic. Hey, 3,000 people came to know the Lord at a revival. Praise God for that. Hey, this huge dramatic healing just went on. Praise God for that. Hey, this church went from 70 to, you know, 90 million. Praise God for that. I mean, we are just a people that are impressed by supersize, right? We just, we like it bigger and better, and we're just really impressed when God does something huge and, and amazing. Again, I want to point back to the fact that Jesus, in the process of this, is making disciples. He's making men out of these boys, both, both physically in a way and spiritually. And he's instilling in them the DNA for a church that will go on for eternity. That's part of the miracle that's going on. We don't ever talk about that miracle. We don't ever talk about this, this, this subplot that's going on. How about the heart that worships the approval of others that now worships God? Isn't that a miracle? That's a total, that's a total radical life change right there. How about the hypocrite who grew up in church and has grown to live out of the truth? God's given them the courage to just say, I'm, I'm done wearing masks and playing games. That's a miracle. How about the father who always sought comfort and ease, but now seeks adventure and the unstable life of faith that it takes to be a man of God and to follow hard after Jesus, no matter what it requires? That's a miracle. God comes in and takes our heart of stone that's hardened to spiritual things, blind to any kind of truth, and he just transforms it with a heart of flesh that's passionate and seeks after God. Those are miracles. Your story of faith is no less dramatic or shocking than anyone who could publish a book about their dramatic story. It's remarkable. And God did it. After a busy lesson plan, he reassures them, and the disciples receive him back into the boat. So number six is just that he rejoins them. You know what the result is? Matthew 14, 30, 33 says this. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him. Mind you, these are good Jewish boys who would never worship a man. Unless he were the promised Messiah. They knew there was one true God. They weren't going to get wrapped up by all the pagan nations that had a ton of gods and idols, and worship false people. They worshipped Jesus. That's telling to his identity as the Son of God. Here's how I want to kind of wrap things up. How about you and I this morning? What is Jesus doing in your life? What if you could chart out a little lesson plan for the last ten years? last five years, last two years. But instead of thinking about it in terms of circumstances, right? Things that we see and touch and hear and 
have empirical evidence for? What if you began to pull back a little bit from that and say, What's, what else is going on? Why do I seem to be frustrated and bumping into walls at every turn? Maybe God's got a lesson plan that's at work right now. Here would be the mistake. The mistake would be for me as, as a good, solid American to, to make this individual. Say, God, okay, I want to figure out your lesson plan for my life. You know how many were in the boat? Twelve. You know how many he constantly ran around with? He ran around with a group of people. He works through community. So maybe a better question for us is, what is God's lesson plan for our church? There's going to be some Phillips, some Andrews, some Peter. They're all going to play a part in God revealing himself to us. I feel like I sound like a broken record with this, but I don't think I can say this enough. This underscores the importance of not allowing this to be what your family participation in this local body looks like. Family, we have to be together more than Sunday mornings for an hour and 15 minutes. Because there's a person up here that has no idea who that person back there is and isn't growing and learning in community. Community groups. That's where we process life. You know what happens in community? Is that sometimes people are able to share with me some of what God might be doing. You know what? It looks like God's testing you, brother. And I go, man, I've never thought about that. I've asked people before, you know what? This sickness, this problem, this issue going on, do you wonder if God might be disciplining you? Because God disciplines those he loves. You running from God in any area? You harboring, playing with, coddling, dating some secret sin? God's not going to stand for that. He loves you way too much. That'll lead to death and destruction. That'll kill you. What kind of father would let their kid just sit around and play with fire? This might be the discipline of the Lord. I never thought of that. Thanks. That happens in community. You know what's gone on on a Friday morning in here with my men's group? Is decisions have been made. I have a decision to make. And we've made that in community. Because there's been some trust there. There's been some some growth there. Some reliability that says, man, these are faithful men of God who love Jesus. And they love me. They have no ulterior motive for sending me astray. Maybe I ought to listen to some of what they're saying. Gosh, I was way on emotion over here. I would have made a terrible decision. What is God doing in your life? But the better question, what is God doing in our lives? Some of you need to get plugged into the our component of that and begin to function in community. What is God up to and how can we cooperate? What is God up to and how can you and I cooperate? We're going to move into a season of communion right now. And... um, Communion is just an interesting tie-in here to what we're talking about. Did you catch that while Jesus fed with physical elements of fish and, and bread, and he certainly put, put their hunger pains on, on hold for a little bit, and many of Jesus' miracles are, have some physical ramifications, but the real gift of Jesus isn't physical, is it? I mean, that's part of it, but primarily it's spiritual. And people come to the church all the time and they say, man, times are rough. Um, can you help me out? Can you help a brother out? I'm out of gas. I need food. My babies need diapers. I need clothes. Jesus had a habit 
of both meeting the physical needs and at the same time offering the spiritual sustenance that we all so desperately need. You know what happens nine times out of ten then and today? Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll probably see you at church someday. (laughs) Good. We're here. And sometimes in our life we do that. God, help me through this test. After the test is over, hardly a thanks. God, get me through this. Times are tough. I promise this, 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 and this. I'm desperate. In communion, we get an interesting um, convergence of the physical and the spiritual. And it dawned on me as we're looking at walking on water and we're looking at feeding of the 5,000, very physical, tangible, experiential kinds of things, that there's more to going on in that story. There's, there's bigger miracles even happening in that story. And as we are about to take communion together, it's more than physical. Jesus takes the physical and allows that to be a reminder allows it to be some different things. Let me just read for you at least a few things about what communion is. And then we'll, we'll go into it. Uh, Band, if you can come on up. Communion is a reminder. It's not about what I can do for God or you can do for God or we collectively can do for God. It's a reminder about what God has already done for us. Communion is a gift. Our perspective changes on the past and the future. It allows us to look back without shame. It allows us to look forward with anticipation and hope. Thirdly, it's a proclamation. This was out of a movie called Amazing Grace. I'm sure others have said it, but I am a great sinner, said John Newton in this this movie. And Christ is a great Savior. That's what we're proclaiming here. This morning. As just by way of instruction, in just a few moments we're going to pass the trays and there's, there's a little, little wafer, chunk of bread. That's representative of the body that, that Christ offered to be broken on our behalf. And in the tray too is a little cup of juice representing the blood that he offered up. And just after this song, we're going to pass the elements. I'd like you to just wait, hold them in your hand. Think about the remembrance. Think about the gift that it is. Think about what we're proclaiming. This is for those of you who've made a decision that says, I choose to follow Jesus Christ.